0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Friday, September 11th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. What have been some of the less prominent successes and failures of the Trump administration's economic plans? Casey Mulligan, an economist at the University of Chicago, details his time at the President's Council of Economic Advisers in his new book, You're Hired. We spoke this week. I noticed uh, a couple of times uh, Mike Pence and uh, Donald Trump, touting the success uh, that they have claimed for a rebound in manufacturing. Uh, Mike Pence says, American manufacturing has come roaring back. When Joe Biden was vice president, America lost 200,000 manufacturing jobs. And he actually said they weren't coming back with President Trump in the White House. We've created 500,000 manufacturing jobs in just three years. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump, for his part, uh, says 10.6 million jobs created in just four months—a record for people who are looking at numbers uh, associated with em- employment in the United States. You think, well, that's not entirely fair to be claiming credit. But more broadly, uh, how much credit do you think presidents deserve for the performance of an economy?
1: You know, much of my career, I I thought. Not much. I thought that the levers they could or would pull just didn't weren't that important in the scheme of a our large economy. But in the last ten years, I started to realize that they're pulling some bigger lever, levers than than I might have expected. Um, and what
0: what do those look like?
1: The Affordable Care Act was uh, previewed in the stimulus law. Had literally a lot of the ACA was at least the insurance part was in the stimulus law. 2009 on a temporary basis, and then the ACA made it permanent. Um, The amount of money and and incentives created there, I I wouldn't have guessed that. You know, the number of people who could be put in a position where they make more by not working than working, that's something I only heard of from Sweden. (laughs) When the Swedish economists would come and visit in the 80s or 90s, I would go and and, and watch and listen like they were telling me about an African safari. That's how far away it seemed but we we've got into those type of types of policies, so there certainly is a scope that doesn't prove that Pence or Trump are right, but it, they're dealing with some big levers.
0: In your time at uh, the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration, uh, what was the most surprising thing about how CEA operated, and you know what notions were you disabused of with respect to how CEA and the President? And other White House staff work together.
1: Um. Well, I put the a number of. I put them in different categories. So there's notions about this president, um, and then notions about the CEA generally. The you know I had heard all kinds of things about this president before I got there. You know I didn't start until the second year of the Trump presidency. So they were doing stuff before I got there. And my main source of information was going on was the same stuff that we all see that what the New York Times or on TV. And I, I knew that those sources were wrong about things that I knew firsthand, like the Affordable Care Act. So I figured they were wrong about this president. But then what's right? I don't know. You can't just, just because you have wrong information doesn't tell you what's correct. So I went in there a little bit fearful and not knowing what to expect.
0: What notions were you disabused of in coming to work uh, in the White House? CEA offices are in the White House. Um, and uh, with respect to this president, and, um, and what differences did you learn about how CEA functions generally?
1: I had heard a lot about this president. I came in the second year of his presidency. So I had a year out, out in the civilian life, if you will. And my main source of information, the same sources we all have, newspaper, New York Times or TV. And you know I knew from experience that things I knew firsthand, I would see reported in newspaper or TV largely wrong. So I, I was pretty sure what I was hearing was wrong, but it was scary what I was hearing. There was blood on the wall, everybody stabbing each other in the back in that work environment. And I, that's where I was going. I knew that was wrong, but it, what do I expect? And then I got there and I found, first of all, a lot of really great Colleagues working hard um, behind the scenes. President has, has a really good staff, and they welcomed me. The other thing I I knew a bit from was that government tend to be hierarchical. Um, you know who sits at the table and who sits against the wall and who's allowed in the room. It's all there's a whole hierarchy of positions. And are you cabinet level? You're one below cabinet level, two, three, so on. Um, that was not. The experience that I had, and I got the impression that was specific to this president, or at least the parts of the White House that I was involved with with this president. So I was treated very much at, at cabinet level, even though that's not the official position I had. Um, I remember Cudlow and Mnuchin and Mulvaney invited me to lunch on, I don't know, the first week or the, the eighth day or something, I was there. Uh, R- Wilbur Ross was there and I, w- I was at the table. They, they wanted to talk about ideas and, and what's going on in the economy. And it was based on what you brought to the table, not your badge, you know? And, and that was a very pleasant, uh, pleasant surprise. I wasn't, wasn't totally expecting and that, that helped make it possible for me to write this book that I was in a lot of the meetings and, and stuff that, uh, might be only for cabinet level people. I did not have a cabinet position
0: before you came to uh, the White House working in in your role. There was this fight over what famously was repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. A whole lot of that fight came to nothing. What concerns did you have coming into the White House having having witnessed that?
1: One of the things I was a little nervous about because I had been interviewed for this position in the Bush White House as well, and it, I was a little nervous that there was going to be some ridiculous Republican plan, maybe presumably a little bit less ridiculous than the Affordable Care Act, but still ridiculous. And I was going to have to cheerlead for a lot of silliness. Um, That had been my experience in testifying in Congress. Republicans would call me to testify about whatever their scheme was. And I would say, well, I would have to say your scheme does a lot of damage. And I would get uninvited. You know, I thought that was going to be my experience. Um, but it turns out, even though I'd written a book about Obamacare, I was about to learn a lot of Obamacare. Pelosi was totally right when she said, we have to pass it to know what's in it. We, we were still, I was as a scholar still learning and people in the I was still learning what was in there and what its effects were. Uh, the individual mandate, the president still brags every other day. To this day, about getting rid of the individual mandate, so he didn't get rid of Obamacare, but he got rid of that part. And that part, in hindsight, it's it's more obvious, but it, we didn't appreciate; nobody appreciated how ridiculous the individual mandate is. Uh, I'm sorry if Cato was pushing it at some point. I don't remember who, which which places were pushing it. But I
0: assure you that was not the Cato Institute not, not pushing Cato, an individual Cato. mandate to purchase either broccoli or health insurance. Good, good for them. <laughs> Heritage,
1: maybe some of these think tanks were pushing that. And but when you think about it, you're you're the individual mandate says you're gonna we're gonna penalize and punish you if you don't buy health insurance, but that health insurance is subsidized. So when somebody turns down a subsidy from the taxpayers, the taxpayers ought to send them a thank you note, not a punishment. And uh, the ACA was sending, sending the punishment. It was backwards and, it, and it's the incredible damage it was done. It was it was damaging the taxpayer because they had to pay for the subsidies that the people were accepting in order to avoid punishment. And then the people didn't want to be punished. So that that was my first learning. Really, literally in the first week, I started learning about that. Um, and because I was kind of, t- I was tasked to see, you know, here's what we have done to change the Affordable Care Act. Um, what are the costs and benefits? And you got to do a serious calculus. I could no longer gloss over things like the individual mandate. I had to give it a close look. And then once I gave it a close look, my eyes were open. I was, I was impressed. So that was the opposite. I thought I was going to be covering both eyes and peeking out between a few fingers at what they had to, what they were doing. And then really, I was amazed. And that's relates to what we talked about earlier when I would tell the guys, you, you know, guys, you were really doing such a great job. You don't even understand what a, what value you're bringing. Um, and that that's a good example. Um, And then every week I would learn about another thing that Obamacare does that I didn't know about. Um, Toward the end, so I didn't have much effect on on anything, but toward the end I learned about how the Affordable Care Act had a new subsidy for opioid abuse lifestyles, specifically prescription tranquilizers, which had not been subsidized before because they're prone to abuse and they're also complementary go hand-in-hand hand with opioid abuse. They kind of enhance the high from from heroin or fentanyl. Um, and we started subsidizing that in a big way with Obamacare. That subsidy exists to this day. And pretty much every week, uh, I would open another page of the ACA and find something like that. And and many times the next week, we would try to
0: fix it. The president made immigration a, a centerpiece of his campaign, uh, most Uh, visually building a wall. Um, how did you evaluate his campaign rhetoric on, uh, immigration, and how did that? How has that squared with, the actions, uh, the White House has taken with respect to both legal and illegal immigration to the United States?
1: Well, there's the Samaritans dilemma. Well known in economics that when (laughs) incentives are going to matter. So if Children, unaccompanied children, are arriving at our southern border, and we give them special treatment because of their status of unaccompanied children. They're going to have more uncom- unaccompanied children. This was something that economics has understood for a long time, um, but somehow in the last three to four years, it became politically correct to incorrect to acknowledge that. Um, and that's that, that. That's some of the problems with illegal immigration that that were bubbling uh, to the surface, and the president the president talked about. Is a wall the way to fix that, or do you just credibly promise we won't help the unaccompanied children? I, I don't know, but we have to acknowledge the problem before we can solve it.
0: And this was what what you understood the president's view to be?
1: Yeah, especially uh, that, that that especially came out when he was getting attacked for the so-called cages that were not new in the Trump administration. Um, Republicans in Congress, or Congress were also speaking up and saying, we we can't have this special treatment at the border, otherwise we're going to have a flood of children at the border. I'm not sure they ever solved that public relations problem, but there was a clear conflict between the public relations and what good policy would be. I, I think we would all agree would be good policy. I mean, the listeners to this podcast and the people in the White House.
0: Well, with, with respect to good policy, with respect to immigration, uh, the the White House appears to have done almost everything it can to dramatically reduce legal immigration to the U.S. as well. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure I interpret that way, and I, I think you're okay. Well, what's to, what's your what's your take then?
1: Not, I think you're referring to some of the restrictions on student visas and uh, green green cards uh, that that happened in the last six months. And so that was after I was gone. But that I have a totally different interpretation, which is the president, like a, any businessman, but not like any politician. There's nothing free, and I think he looks at, you know, my industry. Maybe I'm going to get fired for saying this, but my industry has gotten special favors from the federal government, special access to immigrant labor that other industries don't get. And the president, I I wasn't there during this period, but I know how he thinks. He's like, nothing should be free. So why is that education industry getting this special access? Shouldn't they have to pay for it somehow? If they're not going to pay for it, are you going to take it away? Um, I think that was what was going on. And um, in, in the last in the last six months, um, and that seems to me just another instance of what he's done, industry after industry after industry. And sometimes he's won, and sometimes he's lost in terms of either getting something in return for that special favor, or, or yeah, even better, yanking the special favor in the, in the first place.
0: Now, uh, Gary Becker, uh, you note in your book, suggests that uh, the Im- right immigration fee for having someone come to the United States is $50,000. There are many sectors of the economy where $50,000, frankly, is not a huge amount of money for when it comes to the talent that they would be uh, bringing uh, under their roofs. Um, But for some other sectors of the economy, $50,000 is prohibitive. How does that square with what you understand the president's view of immigration to be. I you mean, know you said, you mentioned you mentioned nothing you mentioned this this notion that nothing is free but yeah go on.
1: The first I heard from the president on immigration we were talking about wages and wages were really growing in 2018 and we were showing him that information and one of the things the first things he said was maybe our companies are going to need some help referring to the employers, that workers are getting expensive. Um, and then we had a side discussion. Well, not necessarily if they're being more productive, that's that's good. And the deregulation maybe makes them more productive. But that was kind of launched uh, an assignment for CEA together with uh, Stephen Miller to have an affirmative immigration, legal immigration plan for the president. Of course, it won't pass Congress, <laughs> but he wanted to have one um, to kind of have a target for people to understand what would happen if we won some future elections. And so when CA, we sat down and said, well, okay, what should we prevent the president? It's, uh, always it's empirical. We always, you know, what are other countries doing? How have the, their experience has been done? That goes without saying that we would do that. Um, that was a big part of what we did. But I also said, well, well, what about, what about Gary Becker? Should we talk about discharging a fee? And I was kind of laughed off. And I understand, I kind of expected to be laughed off. You know, that's not politically, even though none of us are political experts, that they're politically, uh, it's a non-starter. That's fine. And and really, some other, Rich Burkhauser and some others ran that part. But then when I heard in in the first meeting and subsequent meetings, the president said, hey, shouldn't we be selling this citizenship? (laughs) And in fact, when he finally unveiled his plan in the Rose Garden, he talked about how citizenship is the most precious thing our country has to offer so he realized on his own without any coaching even though i said we should give such coaching uh he came to the conclusion himself that a smart way to do it economically he, of course he knows the political nonstarter um he that we should have a fee for citizenship and what he opted for was something like a canadian and australian plans that have a point system so the kind of a central planners attempt to try to mimic What a fee system would do. Of course, central planner will be a poor mimicker, but to try to go in that direction, the point system would reward contributions to the the economy from an
0: immigrant. In in general, your time there um, with respect to this president and uh, economics, how do you evaluate his uh, appreciation for some of the key lessons that a student should take away from? your basic economics class.
1: I, I struggle with the word appreciate. He, I mean, definitely. Understand. Internalize. Let's he, say he, that. He understands. You know what? Right about when I left, my uh, old longtime friend and colleague, Tom Phillipson, became the acting chair. So he was at the cabinet level of the CEA. And Tom has a funny way of speaking. <laughs> um, he's he, he's actually an immigrant himself. And I had to laugh because I would see the president on TV so many times talking like Tom. <laughs> And so the president really absorbed uh, a lot of these, a lot of the things we told him. As I said, some of the stuff he came up uh, on his own, Um, like the idea that, oh, if we have, if we pin our drug prices to international drug prices, of course, the politicians sell that as reducing drug prices here, but also may increase the drug prices over there. And it, Tom told that the president, he immediately absorbs that. In fact, the president talks about that second effect all the time in rallies and speeches. Um, It's kind of interesting that he would even mention that effect, but that's the full economic analysis has to have that, have that. Um, He, um, you know, in terms of his style, if you told him something he hadn't thought of, which was not all that often, because he, as I said, he thought of a lot of the things, but told him something thought of, he often would push back and say, you're wrong and and if you didn't know him your your interpretation was well i just ran into a brick wall but we learned that the you're wrong declaration meant i'm going to go home tonight and think about this and read up on it and see if i agree um and that we saw once we saw that happen we realized what that really meant an example was early in the pandemic um, in fact this was my last meeting there we we showed him the evidence on how the flu, 50 or 60,000 people can die from the flu in a season, not unusual. And he said, you're wrong. <laughs> and I there I understood later why he thought that was wrong, because not, the CDC and uh, and the health experts never told him that. And he just assumed that if that was true, he would have been told by the health people. And so why was he hearing it from us economists? Um, but he went back and read up on it and probably called some people and then he went out in the, on the podium the, the next week and said, you know, I learned this thing that I hadn't expected at all. You know, 60,000 people a year can die from the flu. So the caricature of, caricature of him in, in the public is very different from how he is as an individual.
0: Specifically with respect to vaccines, you produced a paper on uh, that subject. What was the, the general uh, thrust of that?
1: This We started a little bit before I got there. The 2017-2018 flu season was pretty bad one in the sense of health losses uh, and deaths. And we decided that you know we really need to look at pandemics and, and give them some careful thought. So we teamed up with National Security Council. There's 10,000 acronyms that I always have to try to remember, which one? National Security Council. And we also got some advice from the CDC. Remember, this is like two years ago. And started thinking about the economics of pandemics. And one of the things that Tom believes in, I believe he's absolutely correct, is in general in health, innovation is so important, it can dwarf pretty much any other aspect of of policy. And that was the focus there as well. And so if you had a pandemic that was dangerous, um, it was going to be costly. And we calculated the cost using the value of statistical life. And we said, well, If there's innovation, you could get treatments or vaccines that can help, but you need to be able to do them on a big scale. The the thing that makes a pandemic costly is how many millions of people have have the condition. And that was the problem with some, many vaccines are not very scalable. And so we emphasize that um, to the extent you want to have public policy in this area, you want to make sure you're not discouraging large scale uh, production processes. And so then later, when after that report was published to no fanfare, although the president was very interested, but the, there was no fanfare when we published that. But then later, the president had that at his disposal to, when the warp speed program was put in place, which was trying to accelerate not just the invention of the vaccine, but the production distribution to a lot of people. I mean, one of the things came directly from that report was, well, the FDA should Allow while the companies are doing the trials in terms of health effectiveness and safety, they should also be able to do trials on manufacturing on a big scale. Um, and that's really half of the warp warp speed policy. And it looks like it may work, we'll know in hindsight whether we got a vaccine out of that, but certainly ex-ante is a very smart, smart approach. Now, I do have one regret that I will probably go to my grave with this regret. Uh, on that report. When we released it, you know, I, I, I looked it over and it had started before I got there. I looked it over and said, You're looking at the cost of the pandemic by saying, okay, how many people are going to die from this times the value of a statistical life? And I said, You know, that's fine from the point of view of estimating the aggregate cost, but that's not fine in terms of the composition of the cost. People may not want to die and so they'll hide out or they'll, they'll, they'll change the way they live. And so the composition of that cost would be very different. And I said, let's let the report go ahead. It's just talking about the the amount and not its composition. So that's fine. But boy, I wish we had gone down that path and said, okay, let's have another part of the report that talks about the composition of the cost.
0: So when you say costs, you're speaking as an economist. You're talking about people who are uh, actively not engaging with the world In a way that they otherwise would and that is uh a cost that you don't feel you discussed in depth enough
1: the opportunity cost right when we used the technical term we used the envelope theorem and the envelope theorem says when you're trying to estimate the total amount of a cost you don't have to worry so much about its composition just assume a composition and add them up and add up all those costs and that's your total cost um now, what the actual, if you come up with a trillion in costs, how that trillion is split among the different types of costs, whether people die or they get sick or they take time off work and they miss schooling opportunities, whatever the composition of that trillion dollars would be, that's really for the people to decide uh, to decide according to their behavior. Um, and we, we had discussed that and we just didn't, we never created that section of the report about the composition. If we had, we would have had a paper ahead of time about this recession. <laughs> I really regret that. And, and also not just from a publishing a intellectual point of view, but maybe we'd have been more ready if that had been laid out.
0: How, have you, how do you evaluate the performance of the White House, Congress, uh, the regulatory agencies, FDA, CDC, uh, and others in responding uh, as nimbly as they might Uh, in in response to the pandemic well my
1: experience with the health and human services which contains the cdc and the fda and and much more uh, my experience with them in the obama administration and the trump administration they're not good (laughs) on any economic matter they get a d plus on a good day and so my expectations were very low when i saw this pandemic coming and knowing that that was the department that was going to be running it i thought oh it's not going to be pretty I guess they somewhat exceeded my low expectations, um, partly because the president had experience in dealing with some of these problems. I mean, it wasn't new to the president that HHS, such as the FDA, has real barriers to creating value in our, for our people. Um, and so the president was able to do some of these things like the warp speed and, and other removal of other FDA barriers, not just because he knew that they were needed. It's one thing to know that they're needed. The other is just the kind of political and bureaucratic scheme of how do you make it happen? And he had already kind of taken on problems like that. Um, and so he was ready to do that. So it was they were above rather low expectations I have. Um, of course, a lot of people today have very high expectations of what the government could do on a good day. I think they're kidding themselves. I'm not sure there's ever such a good day. Um, and you you saw that with the tests and and they still to this day, there are tests that aren't getting approved. that would be useful
0: there yeah, there is I heard an uh, epidemiologist uh, discussing um, the way in which uh, the standards are set by federal agencies. And uh, his argument was, we need to lower those standards so people can have a test that is virtually an instant read test that they can take every day because it's cheap enough.
1: This is an ongoing problem that you know Hayek explained it uh, years ago, that we're all in varied situations and there's nobody, no matter how smart, can know what our individual situations are. But this idea that you can't do something unless the government gives approval means either the approval is gonna be incorrect or somehow the approver needs to get all that acknowledged. And the second's not happening, it's impossible. Certainly not happening in a timely manner. And that, as we discussed earlier about the pandemic innovation, time is of the essence. Government is not gonna be timely.
0: Casey Mulligan is author of the book You're Hired, about his time at the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.